Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 50, Brandon Garrett, The Proficiency of Experts. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Brandon Garrett. Brandon is the White Burke Miller Professor of Law and Public Affairs and the Justice Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Brandon teaches constitutional law, as well as courses on criminal justice policy and forensic science and litigation. His recent research has focused on wrongful convictions and the prosecution of organizations. Our podcast today features Brandon's new article, The Proficiency of Experts, which was co-authored with Greg Mitchell and is published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. In it, Brandon observes that in their obsession with Daubert and the reliability of experts, courts have neglected the issue of qualification. In particular, he argues that rather than determining qualification through credentials or experience, courts should really rely instead on performance. In other words, the ability of an expert to perform better than a layperson. This emphasis on proficiency testing shares much with others hoping to reform forensic science, including PCAST, the Presidential Council for Advisors on Science and Technology, as well as Jay Kohler, who talked about some of these issues on Excited Utterance last year. That said, one of the interesting twists in Brandon's article is situating proficiency testing with the requirement that an expert be qualified, rather than with reliability. That's a move that we'll explore in our discussion. Brandon, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited. Your article begins by distinguishing qualification and reliability, and in a sense, you argue that courts are too lax with the qualification requirement and spend all of their energy fighting reliability. Why is this distinction between the two terms important? So courts do ask a preliminary question whether someone is qualified to be an expert, and then they may ask whether the expert testimony is reliable or scientific enough to deserve to be admitted. And so those are two separate inquiries. But people normally think of the qualification aspect of it as being kind of not a big deal, not important, a throwaway. And, you know, how many years have you been doing it? Are you experienced? Have you ever been disciplined? Are you a member of professional associations? If so, okay, you're the kind of person who does this work. You're qualified. The rule talks about the knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education that a person may have. And if so, then maybe they can be called an expert. But what I argue with Greg Mitchell in this piece is that whether someone has experience, what their credentials are, that doesn't necessarily make them any good as an expert. We should care about whether they're actually good at the thing that they say they're going to do and not just what their credentials are. What made you decide to make this change in perspective? What led you to this idea? 
Well, lots of scientists prefer to be called doctor or have their PhD and other degrees listed after their name in their publications. Lots of people care about their credentials. And those of us who have graduate degrees, we like to have some benefit from having put those years in. And whether it's graduate degrees or experience, we want to get something out of it and we expect it to be a professional credential. And that's fine. People often should be respected and their opinions should be respected because of their credentials. But credentials don't equal skill. You could have someone who's done something for 20 years and has done it badly for every single one of those years. Greg Mitchell and I can understand why judges would look at the qualification of an expert and just ask, is this someone who's experienced the right thing? Sometimes they do scrutinize qualification of experts. And they might sometimes say, look, just because this is a police officer that thinks he knows what marijuana smells like doesn't mean he's qualified to say that it was marijuana. You need someone who ran the test. Or sometimes they'll say, this doctor isn't qualified to reach an opinion about dental records. It's not a dentist. This person has the wrong credential. But it's rare for them to ask whether the person who claims to have credentials, and maybe they do, whether that person is actually good at the job. And we think that's in tension with the purpose of qualifying expert witnesses and examining expert witness testimony, which is that you want someone who is actually better than a lay person at doing something and can actually reach the opinions that they reach in an accurate way. And so the reason why I ask that question is I feel like, in some sense, you're changing the meaning of the word qualification, that traditionally qualification is about credentials and experience. But then it occurred to me that instead of rather changing the meaning of qualification, I almost feel as if you're updating the meaning of qualification to the way that a more contemporary audience would understand the word. And here's the analogy I want to draw. So traditionally, most of the world operated based on credentials. So you trust the judgment of doctors because, well, they were trained as doctors and they went to these various medical schools. And the same went for almost every other thing, subject matter experts, teachers, marketing folks. But these days, we have moved toward testing and various metrics. So it seems like we expect measurement and data to prove the worth of medical experts or advertising campaigns or educational programs. Is this the kind of move that you're trying to make in changing the definition of qualifications? Yes. We acknowledge that the advisory notes to Rule 702 do emphasize that experience alone may sometimes be sufficient. That's not necessarily inconsistent with what we're saying, but the advisory notes certainly don't say you need to proficiency test your expert before they take the stand. But what we want to argue is that a modern understanding of expertise is empirically informed, no matter what the profession is. Now, traditionally, maybe it was enough for a courtroom interpreter to say, judge, I speak French really well. Let me translate French whenever you have a French witness. Today, we would say, no, 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 that's crazy. That person needs to be given a test to find out whether they are actually proficient at translating French. We can't take their word for it. Why is it important to make proficiency testing part of qualifications as opposed to the usual reliability analysis in Daubert? The reason we argue that it's simpler and better to think about it as a qualification is that for many types of expertise, the entire thing that this person is offering as their skill is based on their experience and judgment. And so their credentials don't necessarily tell you how good they are at what they are doing. And if they're not good at what they are doing, they really shouldn't be coming into court at all. And it's not about the reliability of their method. We may not know how reliably they applied it to the facts of this case. But if in general in their work, they aren't good at reaching the conclusions that they try to reach, then we don't need to talk to them any further. And we talk about black box experts. And these are types of expertise where there aren't fully objective standards. 
where we're trusting the person to reach good judgments based on their training. And so an example of that that we talk a lot about in the article are latent fingerprint examiners. There are no set number of points that they're supposed to look at on fingerprints. What we are trusting is that because they've looked at lots of fingerprints before, that they will reach a good judgment about whether these fingerprints can be identified as having come from the same source or not. And they can't explain their process in any particular detail. They can show what they did, but ultimately it's their judgment call. They are a black box. Their entire expertise is their experience and their training that they're using to reach a judgment. And so if you don't test them to see whether they correctly match prints or not, you have no idea whether in the thousands of cases they've worked on, they were getting it right or not. So let me be a little more specific. What I'm getting at is if we make this change, so there have been advocates for placing a requirement of proficiency testing effectively in the Daubert standard, so in the reliability analysis, you're suggesting you put it in the qualification analysis. Do you expect that this will change certain outcomes in real life? So for example, in the fingerprint area, are you expecting that judges will do differently or will they basically do the same thing because they want the outcome that they want? What we would hope, and this couldn't be done now, what we would hope is that a judge would look at rigorous proficiency tests, which would show that this person is a good performer in latent fingerprint comparisons, for example. They could just look at those documents and at the qualification stage, they could say, yes, this person is a proficient fingerprint examiner, let's proceed. In many ways, it would simplify the qualification analysis. You don't need to go through the person's CV. It doesn't matter how many years they've been on the job if they are really proficient. But to do that, judges would actually have to have meaningful proficiency data that would tell you how good this person is at the work that they really do in a crime lab every day. And we don't have that in most fields. We don't have it because judges aren't asking for it. And so instead, in the criminal side, it's not true on the medical side, but on the criminal side, laboratories that are accredited, the proficiency tests are well understood to be really, really elementary, not representative of real casework. If you look at someone's proficiency record, it's just pass, 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 pass. Although a non-trivial number of people fail these things, but they don't really tell you how good the person is at their real job. So I'd like to push you on a couple other things. First of all, let me begin by saying that I totally agree with your position that we need more proficiency testing. I think that's a good idea. My skepticism now becomes one of whether or not the way to push greater proficiency testing is through some kind of admissibility rule like a qualification requirement. So for example, what do we do with expertise that doesn't lend itself to this kind of empirical testing? Proficiency testing does great for things like forensic identification. You have a repetitive task, it has a standardized process. But what about someone like a plumber where I have a water problem in my house and I want a plumber to testify about why it occurred? Does he then get excluded under your new standard? Maybe yes, maybe no. If the plumber is going to testify about information in the field, like the types of things a plumber looks for to identify leaky pipes, maybe other types of experts that are really describing industry standards, experts like that can still be proficiency tested, but you'd really just be, and maybe the judge could just do this briefly on the stand, test them a little bit on their knowledge of industry standards and where they come from. But the task isn't that demanding if it's just a question of familiarity with practices in a field or something like that. Uh, however, if the plumber is reaching a different type of conclusion, if they're saying, my opinion is when you tighten a pipe this way, the chance of a burst are exponentially increased. 
or like arson investigators. These kind of markings are an indication that this was caused by fire. There are lots of different types of experts. If someone's making a causation claim, then there better be empirical evidence that their conclusions follow. And you'd want to test them on pipes and see if they can correctly identify the ones that were leaky based on how they were screwed together. They're making a claim that you can test and you can see how good they are at identifying the pipes that were in fact leaky or the pipes that were in fact improperly joined. But I agree that there are plenty of types of experts that really aren't making case-specific conclusions. They're describing literature generally and then you can just test them on their familiarity with literature and it's a much simpler type of expertise to admit. I want to pursue this further because I think it's really interesting. I absolutely agree with the idea that if you have a plumber and the plumber is making some assertion about why the pipe burst, in an ideal world, we would have the plumber do a lot of testing on a whole bunch of different pipes. But sometimes that kind of information is just not available. And it seems to me that in those situations, it would still be prudent for the legal system to have this expert come and give their opinion because that plumber certainly has more information about how pipes burst or how pipes work than, say, I do as a layperson. I think that's an open question. You can have experts all the time come in and saying, oh, yes, this is the kind of thing I observe when X happens based on my experience. We don't know, actually, whether their observations and experience are more valuable than the common sense of laypeople unless it's ever been tested. And I think it, it really is a troubling thing for the legal system to have people coming in designated as experts, opining on things based on their experience where we have no idea whether that experience should be informative or not. Okay, so let me push you in a different direction. Why admissibility? Yes, and actually Greg Mitchell and I, we think admissibility is important, but we also know that there are other ways of regulating this and making improvements in this area. Okay, so if not admissibility, I think it's fair to say that lay people understand this idea of proficiency testing. What you just explained to me seemed like a, a reasonable argument. Look, we don't know whether or not the plumber has any good idea about why pipes burst. Why isn't it enough for opposing counsel to simply point that out? Why actually require that it be part of the qualification process and exclude the attorneys? And, and in many ways, I think what I'm asking is, why isn't the solution just to educate attorneys about these problems and have them present the material to the jury? We strongly believe that this information should be presented to the jury. We think that it's important for it to be part of the qualification stage because a judge has to ask about it and the attorneys need to have the information. If that doesn't happen, then this proficiency testing won't occur. But we aren't saying that there needs to be some heightened threshold where you have to show this person is like perfectly proficient to take the stand. And in fact, we say, you know, in general, let the jury hear about how good an expert this person is. Because what happens now is that all sorts of experts testify categorically based on their opinion and their experience. Based on my experience, it happened this way. That guy's print was on the gun. Based on my experience, that fire was arson. Jurors assume that that's correct. They have no reason to doubt this person's expertise. If the jury hears something about this person's proficiency, not just error rates in the field, but that this particular expert is, well, actually they're wrong, you know, 20% of the time. Maybe that's pretty proficient and, you know, we'll let them take the stand, but they're wrong a non-trivial amount of the time. That will have an impact on the fact finder and it should. Greg Mitchell and I have a separate jury study, an experimental piece that we're finishing right now, which we've briefly mentioned in footnotes in this law review piece. We tested that on mock jurors, a national sample of jury-eligible adults, and we found that there is a striking and consistent and quite rational 
effect of giving proficiency information to jurors, that jurors assume that fingerprint evidence is really, really strong when it's presented in this categorical way, where it traditionally is presented in a very strong way, but that the, the worse the proficiency results they hear about, the more they discount the value of that evidence. And the data is just really, really striking. It's just each step down when they hear more evidence that the person did worse on proficiency tests. So this is information that you know jurors won't hear about a little bit of a proficiency problem, throw all the evidence out. They will react in a really gradual, graduated way to proficiency evidence. So we think it's something jurors can incorporate. They should hear about it. And it should be the kind of thing that routinely comes out in discovery and at trial. Interesting. So basically, it may just be that you have to require that they produce some kind of proficiency test no matter what the result happens to be. And it's not that they have to pass any threshold at all, just let the jury deal with, you can't present the expert without that kind of information. And it's the qualification stage where that type of thing normally comes out, the expert CV, their background, that's the stage where, where that discovery or that information is normally exchanged. Whereas right now, often judges only talk about proficiency in the context of Daubert analysis. And so they don't ask about this particular person's proficiency. They often just say, well, there is in general proficiency testing in the field. That's why it's a reliable method. So let the person in. And so they never reach the question, well, okay, but if this person is proficiency tested, let's see the test results. That should be something that the lawyers talk about when the expert takes the stand. Final question for you, Brandon. What's next? You mentioned that you and Greg were doing a mock jury study. What other work remains to be done in this area, either by you or other people interested in the topic? Well, on the criminal side of things, there is an enormous need to have more challenging proficiency tests. And it's not just that the providers are worried about people failing the tests. It's that there aren't objective metrics that have been used in the past to figure out how hard or challenging a piece of evidence is. But now for fingerprinting and for other types of evidence, there are these algorithms that statisticians have been working on. So you can actually use those to pick prints that are of medium difficulty or that are highly complex. A really proficient person should be able to solve it, but, but it's a really challenging problem. And that's what you want with testing. You don't want just an easy test or an impossible test. You want questions of varying difficulty. Someone getting a really, really hard question wrong doesn't necessarily implicate their performance. Still, you do want to challenge people sometimes. Another frontier is in making these tests a routine part of people's work. So it's not just a test you take on testing day where your supervisors review your answers before they get turned in. That's what usually happens now in crime labs. The Houston Forensic Science Center, for example, has been instituting blind proficiency testing, which is routine. And people are working on a case in the lab and they have no idea that actually this case, which seems like any other case, is a test. And so as part of kind of a research consortium funded by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. A whole group of us at UVA have been working with the Houston Crime Lab and are continuing to do so to think about how to design better blind proficiency tests, including by using these algorithms and thinking about how to model the workflow so that this is all effective. And so I'm working on studies to see how this plays out in the courtroom, but I'm also working with Karen Kaffadar in our statistics department uh, Dan Murray and Sharon Kelly in our Institute for Law Psychiatry and Public Policy, and people at, at Crime Labs to try to think about how to actually do this well in, in the field. Well, Brandon, thanks for taking the time to talk about expert qualifications and the work you're doing on proficiency testing. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much. It was exciting. We uttered many things, and I'm a big fan of this. It's a real honor to be here. To my mind, Brandon's new article raises three important issues that should be welcomed additions to the debates over scientific reliability and forensics. First, 
One could argue that the problem with Daubert is that it currently stands for too many propositions at the same time. After all, Daubert has become the convenient battle cry for anyone proposing any kind of reform associated with scientific evidence. But when something comes to stand for too many things, that waters down its rhetorical and analytical force. By shifting the emphasis from reliability, namely Daubert, to qualification, Brandon's article gives itself the separation, the distinctiveness, that's needed to perhaps succeed in promoting reform. Second, as I noted in the interview, this framing of proficiency testing as part of qualification coheres with modern thinking. Nowadays, we don't, or at least we try not to, judge merit merely on the basis of education and experience. We're aware that those things are just proxies, and there are cognitive biases associated with those proxies. Instead, to the extent that we can, we prefer to test people. So in a way, Brandon is simply updating what evidence law means by the word qualification. Finally, perhaps the most important distinction that Brandon made during the interview is the one distinguishing proficiency as a group and proficiency as an individual. Although it's not inherently the case, and perhaps I'm overgeneralizing a bit here, it seems to me that the Daubert framework often tends to assess things at the level of the discipline rather than at the level of the individual. So proficiency testing in the Daubert context is generally about whether the field as a whole can do what it says it can. By shifting to qualification, Brandon changes the focus from the field to the individual. After all, it's important not only that fingerprint examiners as a group can do what they say they can, but also that the particular examiner involved in the case can do so as well. And with that, we arrive at the end of the spring 2018 season of Excited Utterance. Looking back, it's amazing to me that this is our 50th episode. We've been on air for two years, and we currently have an estimated 2,500 weekly subscribers. Thanks to all of you for tuning in this season and spreading the word, and to all of our guests for talking about their work. I also want to offer a word of special thanks to Carson Smith, who has been my incredible production editor over the last two years, and who is a graduating senior at Vanderbilt University. Carson has been with Excited Utterance from its very beginning, and I couldn't have done all these 50 episodes without her tireless work. So thank you, Carson, and good luck. The regular version of Excited Utterance will pick up again in the fall with the start of the new academic year. However, this summer, you are in for a treat as associate producer Alex Nunn will be guest hosting a special edition of Excited Utterance featuring student notes on evidentiary topics. Alex will be a visiting assistant professor at the University of Arkansas starting in May, and I think these episodes will be a great addition to the podcast. So watch for his episodes, which will release this summer. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith, assisted by Riley Beal. 
Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, wishing you a wonderful summer. I hope you'll join me again in the fall when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.